0: Hello and welcome to the Recovering God podcast. This is a platform for women and men to explore issues that affect the faith lives of Christian women. We hope you find this episode interesting. Welcome back to the Recovering God podcast. Alison, it's our second interview. Woo! it's your first interview how did it go uh well Natalie Collins was
1: incredible she's kind of like a hero it was a nightmare because I was sitting opposite there thinking oh you're such a hero of mine <laughs> and you, you're just sitting here talking to me so naturally <laughs> and I knew so much about her and she knew nothing about me which is really weird <laughs> um, so yeah, so in this interview she's she's talking about her, her background a bit and she um she's a gender specialist uh, and has been doing that for 10 years which I'm sure you'll hear all about in a minute and uh she was just a delight and she's a real powerhouse wonderful woman
0: fantastic I'm really looking forward to listening to this one brilliant shall we go ahead yeah let's
1: Hello Natalie, welcome to Recovering God Podcast. I just wondered first of all if you'd tell us a bit about yourself and your history and your faith journey and um, anything that's shaped you as a person for those people who don't know you.
2: (laughs) That sounds like a whole podcast, just me (laughs) rambling on. Hello. Um, So, I'm Natalie Collins. I describe myself as a gender justice specialist, which is a title I made up to describe all the many things that I do. Which doesn't help because then people just are like, "What's a gender justice specialist?" And then I have to start over again. So, um, I've been working for over a decade now on issues to do with male violence and women's rights. Um, so that involves things like domestic abuse, sexual exploitation, pornography, female genital mutilation. You know all the fun topics. Uh, nobody wants to sit next to me at a dinner party. <laughs> But um, I suppose my journey in terms of faith is I grew up in a Christian home in the north of England and I then met an abusive man who at the time I thought was just the most beautiful um, teenage boy I'd ever met. We were both 17 and he was very abusive. I was with him until I was 21 um, when he assaulted me and my son was born three months premature when I was pregnant. And so um, I then ended up living in a hospital with a premature baby in a Um, quite traumatised toddler and it was when I was living in hospital that I met this God that I'd heard about my whole life and that I'd tried to serve and tried to be faithful to according to the the rules within conservative evangelicalism and uh, discovered that God's actually much better bigger than anything we could ever know, and it's much bigger than anything I could still ever know. But I discovered that this God was everything, and God asked me to stop praying for my son to live and, and to pray for God's will to be done. And so that sounds like a really harsh thing like it doesn't sound like you know oh I'm just gonna take away all your hope (laughs) maybe nothing will get better maybe a child will die um you know which was pretty horrific but but actually what it did was it liberated me from this expectation of things going how I wanted to and Mm -hmm. I'd lived with somebody for four years who was very dangerous and very abusive and one of the things that an abuser will do will they will prevent us having anything that gives us strength, they will isolate us from friends and family, they will um, control our access to money, they will um, tell us that we're worthless and useless until we start to believe that, and they will undermine any sort of relationship we have with a God who could liberate us. God will become a weapon to beat us, not somebody who can liberate us. And so after I'd left my ex-husband and was living in this hospital, it was through that experience of a I wasn't the sort of person that God spoke to and then God started speaking to me and b I discovered this God wanted to me to give everything and but that there would be liberation through that and so I chose to trust God and praise God my son is now 14 and is pretty wonderful my daughter's now 16 and um so I That sent me on this journey of being obedient to God above everything else and just choosing to do what God told me. And and that involved spending a lot of time with God, reading the Bible a lot, learning who God was and being able to really clearly hear God's voice above all the other voices and I think that journey of growing up in conservative evangelicalism and learning that who the church told me God was and what God wanted for me as a woman um was quite different than who I experienced God to be um but I still would consider myself an evangelical I refuse to to reject that (laughs) that that title particularly I think why why do the Trump voters get to be evangelical why do they get to win so um but yeah, so that, that then sent me on this very long journey um, that I'm still on um, and led me to, uh, I was at a women's conference and God said to me, you're going to start to work to address male violence nationally. And I was like, I'm not. And God said, you are. This is how generally mine and God's conversations went back then. And, and God said, you are. And I said, I'm not. And then God said, if I call you, I'll resource you. And so I was like, well, I can't argue with that. And since then, that's what God's done. God called me to work um, within a local authority, delivering programmes for women, God opened doors for me to work in the church, um, and I both work, I have kind of one foot in Christian culture and one foot in wider society, um, addressing lots of different things as I say before about um, women's rights and male violence Um, within the church that involves uh, setting up project 328 we count the number of men and women on the national Christian platform I'm one of the co-founders of the Christian Feminist Network in the UK I set up a campaign about the 50 Shades series and we protested at some of the premieres which was good fun Um, (laughs) and yeah I've written a course for women who've been subjected to abuse that I'm currently training practitioners to run I've written a course for young people that I train practitioners to run about education around exploitation and and abuse um yeah and do lots and lots of different things is that enough oh my goodness (laughs) that is incredible so you do
1: lots of things I first heard you on the nomad podcast yeah which um and so there was a lot more um information about your your background so I'm sure if people want to want to go find more information about you and listen to more that's that's a different sort of you're talking differently there but there's lots of information there We'll, we'll put something on the website and um, we'll give people more information at the end about where they can um, can find you. So, um, this is probably a silly question, but I want to know, would, would you call yourself a Christian feminist and why or why not?
2: Well, I think it's not... I think probably when I first sort of began identifying as a feminist there was this kind of like contentiousness around whether you could be a christian feminist or you should be a christian and a feminist um i'm a christian because god liberated me through the power of jesus and the holy spirit and i'm a feminist because feminism was one of the paths through which god brought me to liberation so i don't I'm not one of those people who would be like, well, Jesus was a feminist. (laughs) I don't think Jesus was a feminist because feminism didn't exist. And we've got to be really careful about co-opting Jesus into our narratives. Jesus wasn't a socialist. Jesus wasn't a feminist. Jesus was, um, uh, you know, all God and all man. And we've got to stop trying to make God and Jesus fit into our narratives because if Jesus was a feminist that means anybody who's not a feminist isn't a real christian mm. and i think we have to be really careful mm. of making those sorts of judgments but for me feminism is about women's liberation and there's there are some conflicts between christianity and feminism and i think as christians who identify as feminists we have to be willing to accept that feminism is going to be very suspicious of us and we have to be very willing to own the fact that christianity has done a lot of damage to women and that means we don't we don't we don't have a right to a place at the feminist table mm. because we because you know essentially i choose to remain within a religion which is inherently patriarchal and has damaged un, untold damage to untold amounts of women um however um I am a feminist, and I'm very grateful to my feminist sisters for generally letting me have a place at the table. <laughs> Fabulous.
1: Um, so just let's just go back to your um, domestic abuse for for, uh, for a while. I just wondered if you'd tell us about the statistics in the UK regarding violence against women.
2: Yeah, so um, statistically, around 30% of women will be subjected to abuse by a partner at some point in their lifetime. Um, for young people their um, statistics are really appalling so 72% of girls will be emotionally abused by a boyfriend by the time they're 16 32% will be sexually abused um, and 25% will be um, physically assaulted by a boyfriend um, so the rates of abuse are very high and what we see st- in terms of the data that we have, and there's not a whole lot of it, is that the statistics are about the same in the church. So we don't see a lower perpetration of abuse in the church. What we do see in the church is women are much less likely to leave Um, because of teaching around headship, around forgiveness, around submission, around kind of Christian cultural idolatry of the nuclear family, all that kind of stuff, which makes it very difficult for somebody to leave. And so um, alongside all the other reasons why it's difficult to leave when we've got an abusive partner. And so there's real challenges around that. And what we're seeing is that through things like the Me Too movement and people speaking out about this stuff, there are more and more women becoming aware that they may be being abused or recognizing they've been sexually assaulted. But what we don't say see is the widest sort of ju- justice systems able to manage that? So the charging rate, the prosecution rate for sexual violence for rape is at one point four percent in this country at the minute. So over ninety ninety eight and a half percent of of men who perpetrate rape won't even be charged. Um, And so what does that mean? You know, essentially, we we see a situation where rapers... that kind of been decriminalized in this country where most men are going to rape with impunity Mm. um which is atrocious um and so there is this perception that we often have i think that this is things are getting better because women are able to speak out and it is great that women are able to speak out but the systems that should hold abusers to account are just not fit for purpose and that there's lots of reasons for that some of it's about austerity and other things but um yeah so there's it's a huge huge issue So what do you think the churches can do then to to make a difference? Well, I think part of it has got to be about increasing female leadership and female authority. the reality is that the majority of those who perpetrate violence are men and the majority of those who are subjected to violence are women about 92 percent of defendants in domestic abuse related crime are male so this is definitely a gendered issue it's not anti-men to say that men are the majority perpetrators where men are, uh, are subjected to abuse the perpetrator is likely to be male too and um, when men are, men are more likely to be murdered in this country but they're likely to be murdered by men um, and women are not as likely to be murdered but if they are murdered then much more likely to be murdered by a partner or by a son so so there are hugely gendered issues so as a church we have to grapple with how our gender theology is contributing to or challenging the sorts of dynamics that would exist in a situation where somebody is being abused by a partner so abuse often people know that abuse is not just about violence that it can not that not just violence but that, that it's not solely about violence but actually, often people don't understand that abuse is driven by a, a need to have power and control over a partner. So this is about how can I control my partner? How do I control the finances? How do I control how they think, how they live, um, how they relate to other people? And and that's driven by fundamentally somebody who's abusive believes I own my partner. Mm. And because I own my partner, I'm entitled to do what I want to my partner. So these beliefs of ownership and entitlement inform this desire to control and those beliefs are joined by the benefits of being abusive we have this idea that all abusers must be tortured souls who are broken and need some healing and there may be some reality in which, yes, there is need for healing if we see healing as as people making really horrific choices. But actually, somebody who's abusive gets somebody who does whatever they want, whenever they want, Mm. provides them with sex on demand. They never have to take responsibility. They can always blame someone else. They get the status of being a good partner and a good parent without actually doing those things and so it's beneficial to the abuser to continue abusing particularly when everybody says oh isn't he such a nice man Mm. so there's all sorts of benefits to being abusive and then there's these beliefs of ownership and entitlement and so if churches don't understand that if they think abuse is just a relationship problem they won't recognize the fact that what we need to do if we as churches want to be safe places we need to address and respond to and challenge the idea that men own women and have entitlements over women. And part of that has to be by saying actually these gender role things are problematic. And mm. um, the other thing that churches really, really need to do, and the biggest problem in terms of practically how churches respond around issues of ab- abuse is that they misdiagnose abuse as a relationship issue. So they look at a couple and they see that there's some problems and they go, Oh, well, they need marriage counselling, or they need um Marriage enrichment, we'll send them on the marriage course. But actually, as much as those resources are really good, if the problem is a relationship problem, sure. when it's abuse, those, those solutions will actually make the situation worse. They will actually usually put or pour further blame on the woman. Because the difference between abuse and a relationship issue is in a relationship issue, both parties have a responsibility to fix it. In abuse, the abuser is the only one who has responsibility mm. to fix mm. it. And so if you're kind of going into a pastoral situation and thinking, well, what could do each these people bring to this, and how do each of these people need to be responsible for fixing it? You're immediately Placing some of the blame on somebody who is not responsible. Mm. So fundamentally, it's about recognizing this propensity to misdiagnose. One of the things that I think is interesting is lots of churches would be very accepting of a single mother if she comes in, particularly if she's not a Christian. You know, it's a bit different for Christian single mothers, but there would be this acceptance of somebody who is vulnerable or in need who comes into the community, and they might offer all sorts of resources to that woman. But if there's a couple where the man is being abusive to his his wife in that congregation, they would likely perpetuate issues with that couple Mm. um, because they can't see that it's abuse. Because Mm. if he's an abuser and I like him, what does that mean for my ability to make good decisions and good judgments about people, particularly if I'm the leader of the church? Because that's part of what it means to be a leader of a church, doesn't it? To be able to make good character judgments about who's safe and who's not safe. And if I can't do that, then I'm not really competent at my job and so it's much easier to go well it's probably not abuse or she's probably exaggerating rather than me having to reassess my whole capacity to make good judgments about who's safe and who isn't.
1: I came across your Grove booklet which I've just got over here on the on gender aware youth work. Can you just tell us why you think it's important to talk to youth about gender issues?
2: Yeah so the Grove book is a uh, So if people aren't familiar with Grove books, they're these short, little... If you don't want to read a whole book, get a Grove book. They're sort of like 8,000 words on... um on different topics that give you a brief overview of that topic. Um, So they're really great. It's a little plug for Grove there. And and this one um, that I've written is about gender-aware youth work. And it's not about gender identity stuff, as much as we do need to be talking about that. It's about gender equality and saying, how do we as youth workers, as youth practitioners, work with young people in ways that don't limit them according to whether they're boys or girls? So very practically, do we um, when there's tasks to be done in the youth group, do we say, oh, Oh, boys, can you lift the chairs? Girls, can you do the washing up? Um, When we as as youth practitioners are saying, um, talking about our lives, are we like making sexist jokes? Are we talking about, as women, do we make comments which suggest that we're, you know, a bit like you know, a bit a bit ditzy, or, you know, are we perpetuating those narratives? So being aware that it's not all about what we say to young people, it's about the implicit messages by what we don't say, by who we ask to do what, um, mm. and about the recognition that we, in our own understanding, will have we're all sexist, you know, um, we are all, if, as white people, we're all racist, like, we because we have been conditioned to be so. So we have a responsibility to become, make that visible and to challenge it wherever we see it. Because if we... If we are Christians, we want for humans to flourish and humans are unable to flourish if they are squashed into boxes based on any facet of who they are. Um, and we need to try to break them out of those boxes. So that that um, small book is just a way of enabling youth practitioners and also parents and others to think about how they can more adequately engage with young people in that way.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so can you just tell us... Um what what I can do what we can do if we identify situations with domestic abuse
2: so one of the tricky things is it's not very easy to identify abuse um so the the kind of traditional safeguarding scenario you know you go to safeguarding training and they give you a case study and it's like Barbara comes to you and tells you she's being abused, what do you do? That's not not how how safeguarding works. Usually, um, most disclosure is accidental and almost always um, gradual. So nobody comes and tells us the worst parts of what's going on. They start by testing us. Can I trust this person? And usually it's accidental. So um, something will have escalated and the person needs our help or we'll bump into them when something has escalated or something difficult has happened and we'll just happen to come across them. And so one of the things we have to do is be vigilant that um, and, and look out for what's going on. And um, we need to be Not looking for signs of abuse in it. It's not like there's, I can give you a checklist of there's the top 10 signs of abuse because you might have one woman and her husband says, You're not allowed to work, you have to stay at home all day, every day. Um, And the other guy says to his wife, "Um, You have to go out to work, you have to keep me in the lifestyle I'm accustomed to. Which of those women do you say there's a sign of abuse? Mm. So it's not as simple as saying, Well, look for the woman with bruises or look for the woman with who's who's curled up in a corner Um, women get on with our lives we function, we look after our kids we keep going and what we don't do is we don't let anyone know what's going on Mm. and so it's very difficult to identify abuse so I mean I would say (laughs) I don't want to like tell people to read my book in some like you know buy the book type thing but actually it's a much more complex process to be able to recognize where there's abuse and it is possible but we need to start asking different questions we need to be very curious we need to presume that anybody that we're talking to there might be more going on than we think so I think keeping our eyes open being vigilant I think I think sort of like there's this counter in my head. And whenever I'm talking to somebody, the count is sort of ticking away there. And then they might say something, and then I go, oh, that's gone up a bit. Suddenly it's at like 30. And then they'll say something else, and it'll go up to 50. And then they'll say another thing, and I'll think, oh, no, no I don't think there's any concern there. And so I'm constantly got this sliding scale that's going on in my head, mm. not in any kind of obvious way, but it's there. And just things will come up that I'll think, oh, is." could that be something be going on there and then it might be nothing or it might be something i think one of the things we need to do is we need to reserve judgment we think judge judging is a bad thing mm. um, but we if we judge that somebody is incapable of being abusive or incapable of being abused then we have made a judgment as mm. much as if we say no they are abusive mm. or no they are being abused and so this reserving judgment and just holding that and saying well there could be somebody being abused they might not be um, is part of that so if we do get to the point where somebody is talking to us or we are through that reserving of judgment, some things occur to us, um, then finding ways to enable that person to know that we're safe to talk to. So opening up conversations, asking questions. I've noticed that you haven't been able to come to church very much at the minute. Is there anything going on? I've, I've noticed that you've been withdrawing from some like social activities. Are you, are you okay? Um, and and just asking questions you know somebody is having problems with their partner and they do confide in confiding us just asking the question do you do you feel safe with your partner and and they might go of course i do but they might Stutter a little bit, and we think, oh, maybe this. So something is about being curious, having mm. curiosity, not making, having a reserving of judgment. And then the next thing to do, I would say, is to contact our, find out who our local services. So Google domestic abuse and your area. Um, So I live in Basildon, so I'd Google domestic abuse, Basildon, and I'd look at what services come up. And then what I'd do is I'd ring up those services and say, if somebody I know was to say that they were being abused, what would you do to help them if I told them to contact you? And if they say, well... We have like group work programmes and we have a children's therapy sessions and we have a refuge and we have a counselling service. Then you've then got some confidence about what's going on locally that if somebody does talk to you, you can say, these are the things that this service can do for you. Because if you just say, oh, well, there's a there's a service, here's the number if that service might only have a telephone helpline that's available three days a week between, you know, three and five, and so they may feel really disillusioned or, you know, disappointed. And then if that service says, well, we do have a counselling service, but there's a nine-month waiting list again that's really difficult so being aware of that and, and managing expectations about what this service can do for them because we need to know that too don't we we need to know what can the local services do for them and so what can we what is going to be required of us if this person's unsafe mm. are we going to need to invite them to be our, in our home if they need to are we going to need to make sure that there's somewhere for them to go or um, that they've got a safe person to talk to or you know all those kind of things so we need to work out what resources are locally available for them from the specialists and what stuff does that mean that we can offer alongside that to help them so one of the questions we ask we're going to ask everybody is can you tell us
1: what your image of god is
2: is breathing god is the air that keeps me alive god is the the blood that goes through my body god is the thing that makes my heart pump god is the 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 sun rising and the moon coming out god is the the love that I have and God is God is all of the everything and and that God chooses to be in relationship with me and allow me to be part of that everything um is what God is to me I suppose thank you and what do you call God Well I so I went through this stage where every Lent I would refer to God in solely female terms for Lent because it was a manageable amount for you know people who are offended by that, that sort of thing. I think probably my conditioning as a as a evangelical is that my kind of natural if I was going to talk about the pronouns of God I would probably use male pronouns not not because I think God is male but more because I um that's just how I've known god to be described um if i'm writing i try to not to use pronouns for gods particularly i mean probably within the book i think i probably did but um When I write, I've just finished a master's and I try to avoid using pronouns for God. Um, I don't use words like Lord. I used to use lord quite a lot, but now I don't. Any words that don't have kind of a female equivalent that I could use, I try to avoid because of the Lent, getting used to calling, using female terms for God. So I think I I usually just use God. Um really um yeah so but I think it is very very important that we advocate for female pronouns and female descriptions of God um but it's I I guess I try to avoid avoid that as much as possible I do think though um I was asked onto a radio program because uh I think in Sweden, the church of Sweden had decided to use only gender neutral terms for God. And I was asked what I thought about that. And I was like, until we've referred to God as a woman for 2000 years, I don't think we can go to gender neutral God. (laughs) So I do think there is a really necessary corrective. Otherwise, those who are uncomfortable with God being female, God having, being um, a woman don't have to be challenged. We don't have to ask, why is that so uncomfortable for you?
1: Mm. Thank you. And then the final question is: Why? What do you think is the most important issue affecting Christian women today?
2: Well, patriarchy. I mean, going to say one single up. thing: <laughs> patriarchy, um, male violence, and female conditioning. Which you know, both of those things form and fall under patriarchy. Um, so, and I would argue that pa- patriarchy is a principality and power. So it's a spiritual thing. So we have to pray against it as much as we have to act against it too. Mm, thank you.
1: Well, thank you. You've given us a lot to think about, and um, and hopefully it will help um, our listeners to to go away and do some more work. And is there anything particular that you want to um, plug at the moment to help people?
2: Obviously, there's your book, Out of Control. Um, Yeah, I'm doing training around the UK next year that will be... will be accessible to people three day training for the own my life course, which is a course for women who've been subjected to abuse, but people can come on the training. So it's for people to train to be facilitators on this course. Um, However, if people just want to come and and learn more about uh, how do we help women to recover, they could come on that. So um, that's own my life course. .info. And so people can find, no.org. That's the wrong one. .org. Um, So own my life course.org. Um, and so I think that's, that's probably if people want to engage with my work particularly. Um, yeah. Right. Thank you. Thank you for coming
1: to speak to us on Recovering God podcast. Well, Grace, that was Natalie Collins. And this is the second time we've talked about this interview because I, um, Accidentally deleted our conversation afterwards last time, so I'll try really hard not to do that
0: this time. <laughs> if you could. <laughs> so, uh, what did you think <laughs> this time? <laughs> She's fantastic, isn't she? She's just brilliant. That uh, everything she said was so clear and so thought provoking, and the statistics that she gave were astonishing. And I feel like some of them I'd heard before you know, sort of 30% of women being abused at some point in their life. I think I'd heard that before. But it just, listening to it again reminded me that that means that people that I know have been abused. And at the moment, I I don't know openly of anybody who has been. Um, That doesn't mean they haven't, but it means that that it's not being talked about. And to be honest, a lot of my friends and people I hang out with are in the church, and I wonder if that links in some way. The fact that I don't know of people who've been abused is an indication of what she talked about, that churches kind of hush these things up a mm-hmm. little bit, and it's yeah. maybe not as openly talked about in the church, but as she said, the statistics are the same in the church yeah. as they are outside of the church. And that's quite frightening, isn't it? It is frightening, yeah. It's never You're right, it's never talked about, and my experience
1: of, of churches is... When it has happened, um, when it's come to light, it's just shut down really as a conversation um, and it's, you know, nobody wants to even acknowledge it, let alone do, deal with it properly. There's an article in the um, Church Times, which is a Church of England newspaper on the 22nd of November, um, and um, it's talking about how it's just not being dealt with properly.
0: And well, when Natalie talked about, she said that churches need to seriously consider their gender theology. Mm. And if we're being kind and thinking about theology in Christian churches largely, I suppose it links back to quite a powerful theology of forgiveness, mm. does it? That mm. that then gets in the way of, um, you know, if someone wants to leave a partner, if somebody has um being abusive there's this almost overriding belief in forgiveness and second chances isn't there that's maybe being misused yeah absolutely uh, and that's that's really important to recognize well and also i think of it as well, that forgiveness doesn't mean staying. Mm. That to forgive someone doesn't mean that you have to continue to allow them to hurt mm. you or anybody else. Yeah, that's right. Um, you can certainly forgive somebody from a safe distance, <laughs> I think. Yeah, without without allowing them to keep doing that to you. Yeah. So in churches, then, are we almost putting across the message that forgiveness means that you carry on as if nothing's happened? <sighs> Is that what we're saying? <laughs> That's what it looks like. Mm. I, yeah, I mean, interesting. I wonder
1: what church leaders think they're doing. I'm guessing that, in you know, in, in a lot of church denominations, they think they're trying to address this um, issue. And yet it's still not being dealt with at ground level. Mm. Uh, it's still being hushed up. Nobody wants their church to um, acknowledge difficulties either with people in their church or indeed when um, clergy or you know vicars, priests, uh, church leaders have, have abused and that you know that's n- not acknowledged either that's hushed up and um, you know there's an, in the article I was talking about on the 22nd of November you know the, there's evidence of um, women that have been abused by their husbands who, who have been church leaders and the women haven't been believed and then the uh, it's all, you know, become apparent that the the chap has been taken off, as it were, but not been punished in any way, been allowed to carry on with his job, you know, no kind of public, not even, you know, you can't do this job for, for five years while you sort yourself out, mm. n- nothing. They're just allowed to carry on. Or just move to a different church. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah, mm. they, they're usually moved to somewhere out of the way, but nevertheless allowed to carry on in their job mm. um, because the men are believed and the women aren't. Mm. Of course, this is a cheerful subject. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: have to keep it light, Alison. <laughs> <laughs> um, going on a slightly different the thing that she talked about then, Um, I really liked you were talking to her about the Grove booklet Mm -hmm. about gender and youth work. Mm -hmm. And I think I said in the introductory um, episode that I'm really interested in the idea of gender roles and particularly where we do and don't fit into the stereotypes that are put out there. I think for young people it's so, so important, the example she gave of asking girls to go and help clear up or make the tea or whatever and oh boys can you come and help me lift these heavy tables and chairs it's it's so true isn't it that we get these messages from so so young and that's a really important booklet
1: yes and I think that we you know certainly I know I find myself doing and saying things which fall into those gender stereotypes yeah um even though I'm really aware of of it yeah and so, and then I'll say something and I'll think, oh my goodness, what on earth did I say that for, you know, that's, Alison, <laughs> what do you really think that that's appropriate? You know, it's like, um, it's like the language of God as well, you know, why do we call God, uh, you know, X, Y and Z, why don't we call God A, B and C, mm-hmm. you know. Um, we we be, we get into habits of behaviour and actually it takes quite a while to change
0: those habits And how do we change that, though? Because I feel like I'm constantly calling these things out and then I feel like an idiot because I (laughs) thought Grace is harping on about gender roles again. (laughs) And and I think probably if people are just going to shut off (laughs) when we talk about it, then... And I try to model it, but what else can we do? I think
1: that's all you can
0: do, really. I think
1: we... Need to try and be wise about when and how we say things, and sometimes mm. we just have to keep quiet because we just it we know it's not worth it, or that it wouldn't come across appropriately. So for me, if I'm angry, I just don't <laughs> say anything. <laughs> oh, that's very good, <laughs> very good of you. Because if I did, it just wouldn't be helpful. I mean, really, wouldn't be helpful. Yeah. So I have to kind of wait until I'm in a place where I feel at peace and can speak in a calm, loving way and say, have you ever thought about? And I'm trying to do more of the Jesus thing. And the Jesus thing is, ask questions. Mm, you know, the whole, so why do you think this? Or can you tell me a bit about why you think that? Or, you know, what what do you think that verse in the Bible says why do you think it says that you know so actually asking people what they think and
0: why they think it rather than just telling them that they're wrong
1: yeah is
0: is what i'm trying to do more of so what you're saying Alison, is that we just need to be more like jesus yeah and then it will be okay yeah yeah it'd be great wouldn't it yeah
1: if only yeah so so easy yeah you and i never get cross about (laughs) things that people say or the way people
0: behave no 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 that's never me (laughs) If only Speaking of things that make us cross. Yeah. Um, she talked about gender pronouns um for God and I thought it was really interesting what she said about um that she uses female pronouns during Lent. So mm. that's a nice um manageable period of time to, to do that. Um but she also said that it's frustrating when people say that um we should just go straight to using gender neutral pronouns mm. for God rather than female. And she said something along the lines of, well, when we've had 2000 years of using female pronouns only, then we'll go to gender neutral, um, because actually people need to be confronted with the reasons that they find female pronouns difficult. And I think that's really, really true. And I I try to use gender neutral pronouns as much as I can and just refer to God rather than he or she particularly when I'm speaking. It gets a little bit convoluted sometimes that that idea that female pronouns can make us feel uncomfortable and that we should sit with that discomfort mm. and ask ourselves why, mm. I think that's really important and really challenging. Mm. Do you, what do you think of that?
1: Yeah, so I've been on this journey, I guess, for about three years with, with calling God she Mm -hmm. and at first I was like oh this is just so uncomfortable it's not you know what I'm used to how does this work even though I know that God is not male or female Mm -hmm. God is neither one nor the other or both and or you know because God's God is bigger than gender Mm -hmm. um so uh, I think the main the main sticking point is that Jesus called God Father. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole God is bigger than and more than and all the metaphors that we use for God. I, I think we're lazy. You know, we say, um, dear Lord. Some of the feminine terms, if we use those more. Or if we even heard people preaching about the feminine of God. So, um, you know, wisdom. Mm-hmm. you know the
0: female element of God or if it was in our songs I think a lot of the way I pray and the words I use about God come from the songs that I hear mm. that's why it rolls off the tongue because it's in the songs that we sing the hymns and yeah. the worship music and if we started including some of the imagery in our music in our worship then that would have quite a powerful impact on the way that people talk about God as well. Yeah, because what we sing shapes us. I mean, that was the whole um, Wesley
1: thing, you know, when they started the... the, Well, they didn't, but when they went around preaching and were teaching people, um, you know, it it was all done by song.
0: So that's the way they taught people Mm. what, what to believe about God. Whenever I've tried to use more female imagery for God and female pronouns... The image that comes into my head that I have to grapple with, and it's entirely conditioning, is that when I use female pronouns, this image comes in my head of God as a woman. And God, pictured as a woman, then links to goddess worship, which then links to paganism. Mm. And this is a ridiculous train of thought that has been you know, planted into Christian history somewhere along the lines that female forms of the divine are, uh, they are goddesses, they are pagan, they are um polytheism, they are um overtly sensual and sexual and that kind of makes Christians recoil a little mm. bit. It's like, well, that's not what we are. We mm. have a, well, A, we have a God that you cannot sort of have in in any kind of imagery because that's idolatry but also even if you could it's a man and that's safe in some way (laughs) yeah because men are really safe as we've been talking about (laughs) absolutely (laughs) absolutely but do you know what I mean there's that that's what my that's the uncomfortableness that I have to sit with when using Mm. female pronouns and I'm not happy with that's the way my brain goes but I think that's the way a lot of people's brains go yeah. whether consciously or subconsciously um and that needs to be grappled with and if we don't use female pronouns for god then we're never going to overcome that no you're right polytheism many gods mm-hmm. yes right. sorry <laughs> <laughs> that's all right
1: i'm just checking um I, I think you're right i think the kind of goddess thing is a problem and indeed it's in the bible isn't it as well but ancient ancient history you know they were in the in the hebrew bible in the old testament books you know they're grappling with the gods trying to distinguish this god from all the other gods in the surrounding nations Mm -hmm. which is interesting i i'm i'm interested in your point about god about them being sexual because actually you know is our God sexual? Well, I think if we stop and think about it, then yes, God is sexual. Ooh. Oh, on no, a controversial. Oh, we're going to lose listeners. <laughs> Explain yourself. Well, I think God's interested in in sex. I mean, I think God created sex. So you know, why would why would God not be interested in that element of who we are as humans? Mm. And you know, and if we if we say god's not interested in that then we're ruling out a big part of who we are as humans you know we can try and suppress the, our sexuality and all that kind of stuff if we really want to but that that's that's not the christian way mm. we are sexual beings
0: and i suppose by saying that god is god created sex god is interested in our sexuality um then that links in with what Natalie's talking about in abusive relationships it, where there's a sexual element to it, whereas it's usually power rather than actually to do with um, anything sexual. If God is interested in our sexuality in our, as sexual beings, then that means that abusive relationships in that sense are wrong and cannot be condoned by the church and need to be actively, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Challenged. Challenged, absolutely, by the church. And you get into a whole load of murky waters when you start talking about sexuality and sex and what should be challenged by the church and what mm. shouldn't. We're not getting into <laughs> no, any we're not of doing, that. we're not doing that. <laughs> but abusive relationships-wise and loving relationship-wise, there needs to be a distinction drawn. And I think Natalie's point about... Um, Couples who, where there is abuse, being um, advised to take relationship counselling or mm. relationship advice. And that being wrong because that implies that both parties are in some way responsible was a really important point to yeah, put across. Yeah, yeah. There is sometimes that assumption that, well, relationship. this is a relationship issue and the relationship counselling will solve it. But actually... Yeah, I'm just going to repeat what I said before. That's really important to, to say that it is not both parties who are responsible for solving that. No. And therefore something different needs to be done. And maybe churches need to look at who they send for relationship counselling maybe and, and who, mm-hmm. who that's advised to. Um, uh, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and obviously Natalie's, you know, a and done a lot of research. Mm. But there is this historical attitude where you know if a woman is beaten up by her husband it's because she deserves it mm. she does she she's, do she's done something she must have aggravated him yeah i mean it's just appalling mm. um but that is you know that is the position that a lot of people have and um it's actually huh, funnily enough there's an article in the um newspaper today or oh, uh on the bbc everywhere you know um about rape cases not being followed through by the police mm. um and not being dealt with um properly and even when there's evidence being delayed and people carrying on doing stuff which they shouldn't be um because the women just aren't believed basically mm. Mm. Well, I think we've rambled on for quite long enough, Grace. I think, so. I think the listeners are going to get a bit bored. So, <laughs> um, g- can we just remind you, um, uh, listeners, that um, it'd be really good if you could rate, review, and subscribe to the Cod Podcast. I was going to say Cod Pass, then—that's <laughs> a completely different thing—and um, um, remember to tell your friends and to get the word out. And for people, for men and women out there who who might want to just think about the issues. Um, Feminist or not It'd be really good if um, We could spread the word Um, And um, thank you for listening Thank you Bye
0: Thank you for listening to this episode Of the Recovering God podcast You can follow us on Twitter At Recovering God Or email us at Recoveringgodpodcast at gmail.com